Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this week's episode with Dr. Mary Dagan, who is a board-certified family medicine physician. I met Dr. Dagan when we were working together at the a bariatric surgery clinic that I work in, and Dr. Dagan has really sought out a lot of training in areas like culinary medicine and lifestyle medicine and worked to develop a more broad view of what health is, how weight and BMI do and do not fit into that mix. And I'm really excited to have her on because she's the first physician we're having on the podcast. And I think kind of, I feel in my gut that this is a really important conversation to have across different professionals, because in my experience being in medical settings, a lot of times there are very weight-centric individuals who do engage in body shaming and sort of minimizing symptoms due to a patient's weight. For example, someone might come in and say, oh, I'm feeling tired, and they just say, oh, it's your weight, and kind of dismissive of symptoms, and then, you know, obviously missing underlying things. This sadly happens all the time, and understandably, the there's a lot of people very upset about that and working to increase awareness about weight bias and how it impacts things. And what I've found in my interaction with many different medical professionals, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, is that there's a lot of professionals who are very open to learning a different way of thinking about weight and health. It's just we need to be having these conversations and sometimes they come into the conversations already thinking about weight in a different way than say the standard weight-centric training, which is, you know, smaller is always better. You have to have a BMI in the normal range, all of those things that we try to, well, we do dispel very much so on this podcast. So we're going to dive into a bunch of things. Um, Before we do that, if you're new here, welcome. So excited to have you. I linked in the show notes links to the early episodes on the podcast. Uh, It's been around for a while now. So The first four episodes, the introduction in the first four, give you a really broad-based view of what this podcast is all about. It's all about talking about how motivation science runs counter to what we really know from the research. Well, that is to say that we talk about motivation science and how the way we approach weight and health often runs counter to motivation science. I said that backwards. But to get a more broad-based background and what we talk about here, who I am, you can check those out in the show notes too. The first four episodes are really going to give you like a broad overview, even just the first intro and the first episode of what to expect. But let's dive in to what to expect from this interview with Dr. Dagan. I'm so excited about all of the things that we dive into for this episode. We dive into a little bit discussion of some of the pros and cons of considering obesity as a disease. Um, I have some, you know, concerns about that, given that obesity is based on body mass index, and body mass index is a very problematic measure. And so we talk a bit about that and kind of the problems with that in the medical field and and Dr. Vagan's thoughts about that. We also talk about some of the barriers that physicians face with regards to how they measure weight and health markers, essentially insurance requirements, and medical chart requirements. So things to keep in mind. We also talk about some ways to understand your health beyond just the number on a scale from a physician perspective. And we also talk a little bit about Dr. Dagan's additional training in culinary medicine and lifestyle medicine. We talk about what that is. And then we talk about the fact that as a primary care board certified family medicine physician, she never got that training and that most physicians do not get this training. So we need to just be keeping in mind that our training programs, whether it's medical training, nutrition training, psychology, most training programs are very weight-centric still. So you have providers that were trained in programs that are weight-centric and and often not evidence-based. And in, in the ways that we know that weight can be associated with health problems, but we can't assume cause from that is the main thing. So Even in this interview, Dr. Dagan talks about 
weight waist circumference being associated with health concerns, but she says that doesn't mean it's causing it, it just means it's something to look at. So what we want to be careful of of just making assumptions that someone's at a higher weight that must indicate poor health in some way. That's the biggest thing. And I think this is changing slowly, but it's it's a slow process. But we talk about exciting fields like lifestyle medicine that take a more broad-based view of health. And I think there's a lot of hope to have more helpful, effective conversations in this area. And I'm super excited to bring you this one. And make sure you stay till the end. We talk a little bit about her approach or her take on the Health at Every Size movement. And at the very end, Dr. Dagan shares a bit about her personal experiences with running and some health challenges that she's had and how that's impacted her. And we kind of map it on to external, internal motivation and how that's impacted her and how she's been able to work to maintain that intrinsic motivation for behaviors like running or other things that she wants to continue to do and wants to continue to feel great about. So before we dive in, just my normal reminder that this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as any form of medical advice. All right, guys, so excited to dive in with you. Let's get going. All right. So today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of having our special physician guest, our first physician guest on the podcast, Dr. Mary Dagan. MD is a board certified family medicine physician and has been practicing medicine as a medical bariatrician for the past two years for the listeners who most listeners probably don't know what that means. That means she practices people working to manage their weight in within a bariatric surgery office, so within an office that does bariatric surgery, but she's the specialist who helps people um, who either don't necessarily want surgery or potentially after surgery, so that's where she and I met. And Dr. Dagan became a certified culinary medicine specialist in 2018. She's currently serving a three-year term as a board member for Ottawa Food, who has a mission to ensure affordable access to nutritious food. Away from the office, she enjoys running, gardening, and wildlife photography. And her favorite time, though, is spent with her husband, two kitties, and their bunny. So welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Dr. Vegan. So excited to have you here. Thank you. I am excited to be here. It's great to see you again, Sean. I'm excited to chat about good topics tonight. So thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. To start off, could you share with us why I know you have a strong passion for this area of medicine, and I'm just curious where you got that passion from. Yeah, that's a great question. I somehow developed this passion, I think, in residency um, training. I started trying to understand the disease of obesity uh, from a disease standpoint. It was not a common thought when I was in residency. It was kind of the thought of somebody must be doing something they shouldn't be doing. Uh, But I I quickly recognized when I was in my training, that wasn't the case. I also started seeing patients for some requirements, uh, that insurance requirements um, that they needed to do prior to having bariatric surgery. So I kind of worked loosely with the bariatric group up uh, in residency. And then when I got into my practice, I just realized that I, I really have a passion to understand this more from a, not only a medical, you know, diagnosis, treatment, uh, scientific standpoint, but also from an evolution standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, I think from the big picture, and I, I'm still working to understand that, but I, I just have a huge passion for this because I, I just want to learn more and I don't know. I really like it. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And I know that's why you and I connect so well. And also it's, um, I love your approach of just like, I I always want to learn more. And that is definitely one of the things I've loved about this field is that it's very complex and there's a lot of factors and it brings together, you know, medicine, biological factors, nutrition habits, and then also psychology. So it sounds like we kind of have that in common. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think it's great. And I think it's great that it's a, it's a new field. Uh, really it's in the whole scheme of things. It's pretty new. And I think, uh, I'm excited to be a part of that just to, to understand and, and learn and treat. Yeah. And this is a question. I know I sent you questions in advance and this one's not necessarily like, I'm going to throw you some curveballs here, probably get curious, but even this idea of, um, if we think about like the psychology behind it and the idea of, 
obesity as a disease, there's some controversy surrounding that. I know you describe it as such in a way to like destigmatize, like you said, sort of not be blaming, um, but it's this balance. And what we're going to talk about BMI in just a bit here, because the term obesity is based on BMI. And so sort of like this, this tough balance of like, how do you describe this in a, in a way that's not stigmatizing, but also helps to describe what you're treating. So I think that's not necessarily a question, I guess, just more of a reflection of like a, a struggle I think that exists in the field. I, I completely agree. It is, uh, it is a struggle. And I don't think we have, uh, I don't think there's an end in sight to end that struggle because I think we're trying to understand, you know, in the, in the, uh, you know, I'm part, I'm a diplomat of the American board of obesity medicine. And I think within the societies, right. Like the medical governing societies of this, um, as a disease process, uh, we're trying to decide what really makes sense to define that because certainly not everyone that has, you know, obesity from a, from a BMI standpoint has what we call sick fat, right? They don't have other diseases. They don't have anything other than that darn number. And so I think there's a lot of good conversations happening, but I, I think because we're basing this off of a very old measurement, uh, called BMI that there hasn't been a lot of movement as far as updating that other than using waist circumference. Um, and we, part of the the downside in healthcare is that insurances are always lagging behind in what the standard of care is. And so that's a, a push that we constantly are battling um, as physicians. Should we still be checking BMI? Well, we have to because insurances make us. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's a, there is a struggle with that for sure. Yeah. And just to jump to that, obviously we both know that the BMI is really problematic. We've talked about it many times and that's sort of what you're alluding to. And so you, um, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit of, you just mentioned waist circumference, how you, you measure BMI cause you have to. And then unfortunately that goes in the chart and then there's the labels associated with it because it's like automatic, but yeah. How else do you sort of help people understand their health in, in a more broad based way beyond that? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think, uh, I do, our staff does check waist circumference when a patient comes to see me. And the reason for that is because we actually have really good evidence that waist circumference is, uh, associated with risk of disease. So again, it doesn't mean that someone has disease, but if men's waist is above a certain point or women's waist is above a certain point, then we know that that risk is pretty substantial enough that we need to have a conversation about it. And so, you know, I, I'm seeing a population of patients that are at a point that they want to get treatment for, for what I would say at that point is a disease. Uh, it's bothering them enough that they want to improve their health. And so I think that the fact that their health is not optimal defines that as a disease. Yeah. BMI. Uh, but then I talk about BMI oftentimes patients come in with these, uh, you know, I, if I see a new patient, they, uh, always have an expectation of what their weight loss should be. And I always ask them that because I want to know, we know that the reality is most people's expectations are really not achievable. You know, it's often, uh, very common that I see a woman in her late sixties who will tell me she wants to weigh what she weighed in high school. Um, and I mean, the reality is when we're in our, in our sixties, we can't weigh what we were when we were 18 for the most part. Um, or is that healthy? And the answer usually is no, very much depends on the person. So I think having those discussions and kind of helping understand why that number doesn't always define, uh, our health is something that I do with most patients. Uh, we, I kind of break down the stigma of BMI because, um, I, I'm pretty honest with patients. I put it on the chart cause I have to put it on a chart, but it really doesn't define anything. So we're working to improve other health conditions that they're coming to see me for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very like whole picture, big picture, personalized approach. And yet it's very easy for people to get fixated on the BMI. So I appreciate you sharing that because, it's important and I certainly say it, but it means something different. I think with someone with medical training for sure. So <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and tell me about, so you have some different certifications and specialty areas. Um, you have a specialty in culinary medicine. So can you tell the listeners yeah. what that is and um, how you got interested in that? Yeah, I, so culinary medicine is a uh, certification that kind of marries the idea of of using food to either treat or prevent chronic disease. Uh, we have amazing evidence that uh, foods can 
I mean, have huge powers to completely reverse disease um, or of course prevent, but really uh, we're looking at reversing. And so I got interested because obviously having a passion for treating the disease of obesity and everything that goes along with that, most of my day is spent talking about food. And uh, so I wanted to just learn about food. I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. And so that aspect, I don't necessarily have the training in, but I wanted the training. Uh, and so the concept of culinary medicine kind of combines traditionally when, when we run a class, it's a physician, a chef, and a dietitian. So we all bring very different elements to the field of education to, to the population. Uh, and so I bring, I bring the knowledge of chronic disease, right. And, and kind of elevate that with a chef's skills of how to use food and chop food and cook food and bring flavors together. And then with the dietary, um, just vast knowledge of foods and, and we put it all together to run classes. So we are typically in teaching kitchens. Uh, so we bring a group of people in. we've actually been doing this virtually since, um, the pandemic started, which has been kind of interesting, but fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, my role is to currently teach our resident physicians. So I do professional classes, uh, but we have a lot of community classes through the hospital system as well, which is kind of cool. Um, but I really got interested in it just to have that combined knowledge to educate my patients. Uh, and now culinary medicine falls under the big umbrella of lifestyle medicine, um, which is something I'm working on getting certified in towards the end of the year. Yeah, I, and I'm going to ask you about that in just a second, because I want to know more about like that bigger umbrella and how that fits in. And um, yeah, I can say from a personal standpoint that I've taken two culinary medicine classes, one virtual with a, our psychiatry team. And then the other one, um, a couple of years ago, actually within a cardiology training program, I got, I got to jump oh, in and it was really fun and like so different in this podcast. We talk a lot about like diet mentality and how, and I share a lot on the podcast about how I've like been on a bunch of diets and it was really not fun <laughs> and really yeah. unhelpful and, and very stressful. And like, again, these classes are the exact opposite of that. It's community. It's all the things it's in enjoyable. It's skill building. It's building mastery in an area that I'm not particularly skilled in naturally. <laughs> and uh, so, so I love that. I feel like we need more and more of that type of approach. Um, yeah. So people can hands-on learn just how to nourish their body in a way that's enjoyable and talk about like how motivating that would be versus like the stress of having to count calories for the millionth day in a row. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that was the initial or still is the kind of the, the vision of culinary medicine is to start incorporating these in different settings from schools to hospitals. Like if you're hospitalized with a heart attack, maybe take a class before you can leave or not before you can leave, but before you leave. Um, and just kind of incorporating it around because yeah, I think these are skills. I, I mean, I had no idea how to chop a pepper before I took training or, uh, you know, I could talk about these foods, but I really didn't know much about them. So it's been really educational for me, but it then allows me to educate other people, which I think is really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you said that you've learned, so you're currently preparing to take board certification in lifestyle medicine, correct? And you yes. said that you've learned a lot from that, even though you already knew the culinary medicine. So what additional takeaways, um, I, I, things that you could maybe share with us or that you've learned or enjoyed learning? Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest, when I, when I first looked into the certification, I thought, uh, you know, I'm already certified and, and, obesity medicine and culinary medicine. So I'll just kind of add this to my credentials. And, uh, but as I started diving into the education part of it, I was really, really happy that I made that decision. And I mean, it was so much more diverse than my training for culinary medicine, because lifestyle medicine really looks at so many other aspects of, of health. And so it focuses on sleep and stress and of course our emotional well-being, our movement. Um, I, I love that it looks at the whole picture. Um, and I think that's why it's called lifestyle medicine. Culinary medicine has now become kind of under that window for that reason, because it kind of addresses the food part. Uh, but I, I love learning about the data. I'm very evidence-based in my practice. I like to know what works and what we've tried and, and, I think that that's very important as we move forward and learn. And so this um, field is very evidence-based and I just was super surprised how much evidence is out there to really support even simple things like the types of foods you might snack on in the evening have an effect on your sleep and how, how 
well of sleep you can get uh, because it changes our body temperature. And those are things that I had no idea about. I mean, um, I consider myself pretty educated in this field, but I have learned a ton. And, and like I said before, I love learning. And so I was very pleasantly and am pleasantly surprised. And of course, I hope that I pass my board exam <laughs> later yeah, this year, but <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I'm looking forward to, to just kind of being a part of that community and, and continuing my education, because I think it really complements what I do and will offer uh, that knowledge that I can then continue sharing with patients and others. Yeah, I love that. And I, and also it, it points out that even with all of your training, the fact that, um, first of all, many physicians don't choose to do the training that you have. And so many physicians in like, well, lots of areas, but like say primary care where they're dealing with a lot of people with struggles in this area, aren't going to have any of this background. And even this additional training of like, being able to step back and look at things from, not that you weren't already looking at from a holistic perspective, but really honing in on like, like definitely sleep and stress and social relationships are probably the main ones that I see people underestimate in terms of how much it impacts their weight and their health. And, and so just, I think for, for the listeners to, to remember that in terms of like, there's just only so much you in medical training, you have a whole bunch of things that you're focused on and this isn't it because there's so many other things you're focused on. And so when we think about patients empowering themselves with this information and kind of seeking out providers that understand it and sometimes educating the providers about what's helpful and what isn't. Um, I don't know. It's just something to maybe consider for, for patients as they're thinking about these things is that we just still have a lot we're learning. I, I agree. And I think it's really important um, to know, you know, I'm, I'm board certified in, in primary care and, and family medicine. Uh, I didn't get this training in, in that training. Um, I actually got no training. And so the majority of primary care still isn't getting that training. I am really excited because our hospital system uh, is uh, educating and it is now part of the family medicine internal medicine and pediatric curriculum that they uh, do get trained and certified in culinary medicine by the time they finish. So they will have that education to take out into their own practices, whatever that may be. And I think that's going to be a really good movement to start getting our younger physicians, excuse me, younger physicians educated uh, to have that knowledge and empower them to learn more. Uh, I think it's great, actually. I'm really excited to be a part of it and be part of that, that movement. Yeah, but that's not the norm, usually like kind of ahead of the game, even in that. So yeah, that's wonderful, but um, it's going to take some time. And so, yeah. And I wonder if, so many of the listeners have, you know, the question of, we've already de-emphasized the role of body mass index, but many people that listen to this podcast may have gained weight for a variety of reasons, a lot of times because they've gone on diets and diets are really strong Mm -hmm. predictor of weight gain for a whole bunch of reasons. And then their biological set point, the, where their body kind of wants to hang out has probably raised possibly because of the diets. Um, and then they're in this place where they're not really sure how much to focus on weight loss, how to manage their health. And, and I guess I'm sure you, I know that you work with folks a lot in that boat. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the things that you want them to consider as they're thinking about, should I focus on weight loss? Should I focus on health? Like, how do, how do I make sense of all this? What would you share with them? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's a very broad question. Uh, and so as I mentioned, and as I know, you know, it, it has to be individualized. Um, and so I think that you have to, I mean, something that I do is, <clears throat> excuse me, as a, as a physician, I, I look over all conditions uh, or diseases that they may be treated for or might be starting to show up in some of their blood work. And I take that into consideration. So, um, you know, a lot of times if they are, you know, already diagnosed with something, uh, the recommendation is to focus on 10% of where they're at, which is completely based on a number, of course. Uh, But we know that that has really good data that says that a lot of things will start to regress or go away. If someone has prediabetes, we know that it can prevent progression into diabetes or into into full-blown diabetes. For fatty liver, uh, we know that it can start to show regression with liver health. So I think that that's kind of a generalized um, kind of overview. But again, I think it really depends on what 
what their goal is. I, I'm a firm believer that I have to listen to what their goals are because my goals as a physician cannot be their goals. I can tell them that I want to base it on whatever, but if that's not their goal and seeing me, it just isn't going to work. Um, so I, my approach is to kind of look at that whole picture. And again, I, I don't necessarily focus on BMI. Actually, I don't focus on BMI at all. Um, mm -hmm. I never think that someone has to get into like that normal category. Uh, I think it's really about improving and, and talking about the whole picture of what they're struggling with and, and why they're seeing me specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you, you've talked about how there's not a lot of, um, physicians with this specialty, certainly pretty much abroad across the country and the world and, yeah. and certainly not <laughs> in our area. And are there certain recommendations you would have in terms of someone trying to find someone with uh, expertise in this area or someone that can really help them in, from the medical standpoint in this area? Is there anything you, places you point them? I, I think in today's age with uh, social media and technology, there's information literally everywhere. I mean, I walked into a bookstore recently and there was about 50 books on sale for some sort of diet or something. So everyone's an expert in this field, right? Um, social media, if somebody posts something on Facebook, it sets a trend for two years. And so I, I'm always very cautious with those things. And I oftentimes will say to patients, if you read something or if you see something, please at least run it by me, send me an email or let's talk about it because 95% of that stuff is probably not true. So my recommendation is always to actually look for a medical professional. Um, and that's a pretty broad statement as well, meaning look for a physician who might be certified in obesity medicine or lifestyle medicine. Uh, there are programs in a lot of places for lifestyle medicine that offer a number of, of um, programs. I think looking for the right behavioral health specialist is hugely important and looking for someone that actually has expertise in the field that they need, because that's also few and far between. Uh, I think looking for a dietitian or a nutritionist that might offer that assistance, primarily if they don't have access to a primary care doctor that has the training, I think a dietitian can be hugely helpful. Um, and so kind of putting all those pieces together, I'm sure there was some aspect that I just missed, but I, I think that having a team of people is probably the best approach. I don't think there's ever, I mean, I'd love to think that I can do everything great, but I can't. And, uh, and I think that other people can do certain aspects much better. So I, I think having a team approach is really important depending on what the person is looking for. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense. And also, it's, a, it's such a balance because obviously, well, I'm sort of on social media now. Well, I'm, I am on it, but I kind of resent it because I struggle with it. But <laughs> there are more professionals, you know, across all professions sharing information on, in social media in an evidence-based way. So that's great. But it's also, it sounds like for you, obviously being cautious and, and running it by obviously a professional who knows your history would be very valuable. Yeah. And I think sorting through what's evidence-based and not for the general population is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's difficult for me and I, I have training in this. So, right. um, you know, I think we don't really know what is a legitimate source or not. And so, you know, you having stuff out on social media, that's legitimate, but people might not know I'm not on social media. I mean, I am for fun, but not from a professional standpoint. And so yeah. sometimes I see things come through that people have shared and the sources are like, ah, that's totally not, not true. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it is a little tricky. It's hard to sift through, to be honest. Um, I, I think if more, more professionals embrace social media, that might be good, but there's no regulations on social media, which make it very difficult. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I followed a, many different professionals, some of which are physicians, just to sort of see how they do things. And, and some do it in a very, uh, what it seems to be evidence-based way, although like, I don't always know the area well enough to know for sure. And so it's this tough balance of, um, it can be such a cool way to get it out to more people, but it's, we gotta be, we gotta be cautious. So, yeah, I would agree. Um, so let's talk about the health at every size movement a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, I had shared a little bit about that. We talk about a bit on this podcast in terms of, um, and I have actually haven't talked about it super in depth at the podcast yet, but we had one episode about it and, um, really 
it's a social movement, but it's also rooted in evidence about, you know, de-emphasizing the role of weight in our health from the standpoint of like, really, I think of the main way I think about it is we can't randomly assign one person to be at this weight and stay for 10 years and the other, we can't ever do true cause. Like you said earlier, it's, it's just always this correlation. So there's always like other factors that might be contributing that we don't know for sure, but the movement's really about more than that. It's about like accepting people as they are with a diverse body set and like, well, I'm probably not even paraphrasing it that well. I'm sure I held that every size person would be like, Sean, you're flubbing this up, but I'm curious what, what you know of it so far. Um, and, and what your thoughts are from what you do know. Yeah, I, so I know a little bit, I, I can't say I know in depth. Uh, I did, um, listen to the podcast that you did. And, um, I also have looked into the movement a little bit since we last have chatted. Uh, and so I like the majority of the movement. I, I think that it's, yeah, for sure. We have to not focus on judging people. Right. And we have to kind of lose the stigma of saying, Oh my goodness, you are at this number. So this must be the cause. Um, I think even as a society, we need to move away from that. We need to, again, start recognizing though, that this is a disease, right? And so we don't know who has a true disease versus who is the healthiest in that number. And that's where I think that this is very important that we can't judge a book by its cover, right? We don't know anything about somebody else's journey. Uh, I oftentimes have, have reminded patients of that when I see them in the office, um, because they will make comments to me like, oh, this person has done this, or, you know, my sister weighs this and, and I'm doing better. And, uh, I oftentimes will just remind people that what we don't know about others is their journey. We don't know if someone's lost a hundred pounds on their own, they're off all of their medications, their knees feel amazing, and they can now play with their grandkids but they still might weigh 250 pounds, right? So what does that mean for them? It means that they're really healthy. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I, I like the movement from that standpoint. My one, um, I guess, I don't know if it's a concern, but always my, my cautionary with this movement is I think that uh, it can be misinterpreted with certain people. And I, I don't want individuals to look at this movement and, and, consider this the norm, if that makes sense, and just accept it as a social norm. Uh, and I say that because obviously two thirds of our country is at a weight that is considered higher than what's healthy, right? And again, we don't know if that's true or not, because we don't really know it defines health. But I, I think that we still can accept this as a social norm. I have seen this when I was in primary care, when I would see children for their well childs, uh, parents were completely not worried about their child's health, uh, in terms of their weight, because it was a norm with all other children, their age. Um, and so I worry that as individuals, we're just going to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay because this is how, this is how everyone is, um, and not look at the risks that are associated with this. So my one concern is I don't want to miss the risks of still having a potential disease, um, or, getting screening to make sure that you are still as healthy as you can be. Um, but I definitely support, uh, you know, getting rid of the discrimination and the bias and, and, uh, you know, it's difficult because I think in healthcare, there's been a movement to try to not have that bias, even having, you know, larger chairs or exam tables for patients really to have scales that accommodate our population. I think all of those are very important, but they're not things that every office thinks of, or even any, social setting. Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do and I, I hope to see that that continues from that aspect. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, as I mentioned, you're the first physician I've had on this podcast, although I've had this conversation with, um, different physicians and people in the medical field. And I do think that's the, the common concern. And I think that's one thing that's still, that's why I think we just need to keep having these conversations versus, um, cause it's nuanced, right? Like the term health at every size you can hear that and mean, think it means one thing. And it's really like more than that, like with anything, right? Like you can't yeah. sum it up in one sentence. And, but yeah, it's this balance of like, we don't want to ignore or miss. And, and I think it's just that I know the movement is trying to like counteract so much 
negative diet culture BS. So yeah. it's like this balance of, and you have people that feel very strongly, understandably so. And, and I, like I said, I would put myself in that category really of, we have so much work to do and we have to be having this conversation across disciplines. Um, yeah. because, because yeah. And I think that's still a question of like, is thinking about it in this way going to cause people to ignore factors that then would be hard to reverse. And I, I think we don't know. And, and maybe, I think, yeah, we just have to be aware of, of and look at it and continue yeah. to and learn. I think the other aspect of this is, you know, they, they kind of start out by saying this is a movement against that quote war on obesity end quote. Um, and so, you know, that's a little tricky because I think people are misinterpreting, uh, that, that phrase, although it's a pretty aggressive phrase that, uh, they've coined in our country. Um, and I think the reason for that movement though is really important. And I don't want that to be downplayed. I think that we know there are a lot of things that we could work to improve in our country and the world uh, that can directly affect obesity and the health of our population. So not even just the, the weight number, but the health. And so yeah. I think that's the, the basis of, of kind of that term war on obesity. Uh, and I don't want that to just get downplayed. I think everything from looking at sugary beverages to, um, you know, what kind of foods are on our shelves, we know have had a direct impact on our health. And so, um, I, I also don't love the aspect of wanting to downplay that, uh, or having people take offense to it. I don't think it's meant to be offensive. I think it's just being taken out of context. There's been a, a huge movement with that, uh, because it became one of the, the federal programs and goals. And so, uh, I think that's a positive for our country to, to bring light to this, to our overall health. Yeah. It's such a, it's a, such a balance. Cause there's like so many things to fight, right? There's diet culture and then there's the food industry, which is really separate, but very powerful as well. And, and there is um, more fighting of the diet industry in within that movement, which I think is incredibly important. And uh, I think you do too. And there's the, there's not as much talk about like the food industry, because it's this balance of like, we don't want to create good and bad foods, because that's unhelpful and rigid and, and stressful. Yeah. And um, yeah, so there's so many layers to it. And, and like you were saying the acceptance of people as they are today and and is really important for lowering stress yes. level and for motivation and that's a lot, something we talk about a lot here is just sort of this idea of feeling connected with your community and feeling accepted for who you are that's something that many folks that you and I've worked with struggle with a lot understandably so they're not yeah they're not told that yeah. And I, I agree with that. And I, I think having or going through the pandemic has worsened that for a lot of people. So yeah. I think we've got a lot of work to do. I think it's a very important movement. And I, I think, you know, educating people on the movement, not necessarily the general society, but also just educating professionals on that, um, I think will become very important with the success of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, and switching gears a little bit. So another question that I get a lot, uh, partly because I, I talk a little bit about like plant-based diets and, and, you know, more plants and how we eat a decent amount plant-based, but, um, people get really confused, um, for, and a bunch of things with nutrition, but particularly for something like diabetes, where they've really gotten this message for a long time that they should be avoiding carbs. So what do you usually, I know that's a complex question too, but, um, what, what I guess is your take on plant-based diets as a whole, and then maybe as it relates to diabetes? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Uh, so I, I think plant-based, I think it's becoming a little bit of a trend. Um, and so it's becoming kind of, I, I caution in saying it's going to be the next bad diet, but given our American take on things, uh, I believe that we're going to, we're going to uh, mess this one up a little bit, but yeah, or maybe, maybe yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, so I love plant-based diets. The evidence is so strong to support these, um, again, to treat a number of different things, both from, you know, physical, emotional stress, sleep, uh, there's just a, a vast knowledge or I'm sorry, vast, um, a good amount of evidence out there that really says, yes, we should be doing this. Uh, I, yeah, as I mentioned, my, my issue is Americans take on these things. It's the same thing that happened with the Mediterranean diet, right? So I, I think 
Americans worry that we need to sit at cafes and eat olives and drink wine all day, but that's not really the basis of the Mediterranean diet. And so with plant-based, what I've seen happen, as I'm sure you have, is we have things that have now popped up like the Impossible Burger or all of these things that are becoming mainstream that are at our fast food restaurants. And in the frozen food aisle, I even um, saw Triscuits made a plant-based little nut ball thing now. And those of you that have, if there's listeners out there that have heard me speak at any event, you all know my feeling on Triscuits, um, but they're right on there with the fads. And that's, uh, that's great for Triscuits. But the, the deal is we, you know, we misconstrue this a lot. Like are Triscuits healthy and are they really plant-based? No. Um, is that meant to be a plant-based. Are impossible burgers really healthy? If you look at the stats, uh, they're really not healthier than regular burgers. And so um, uh, I worry with our take on this, but in a very general statement of plant-based, meaning eating more fruits and veggies and uh, not doing the processed foods that we're coming up with, I think is fantastic. And in terms of diabetes, uh, this is probably one of the most common conversations I have in a, in a week average is talking to people about eating more fruits and veggies. And I do talk to them about fruit because I find that somebody at some point, whether it's their primary care doctor or their endocrinologist or whoever's managing their diabetes, uh, even dietitians have told them that fruit will cause their sugar to be high and make their A1C worse. It'll make them gain weight. And the reality is none of that is true. There is zero evidence to support that. And so I try to break down that myth very often. Uh, fruit is a carb. I said it. Fruit is a carb. Carbs are not our enemy. I, I, I just don't believe it. And they're not, I, I think the right kind of carbs are very, very important and essential and fruits are in that category. So, uh, fruits are amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love hearing that. And, uh, and I think it's important to make the distinction to, between plant-based, which I use that term all the time and more of like traditional whole food plant-based, which would be more what you're saying, which is like basically foods closer to their natural form. And yeah, I, we eat like some of those fake meat products and I'm like, I kind of like them, but I know they're not like huge. I just like them. Right. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not fooling myself and saying like, this is like so much better. I just, yeah. And it's, it's and common, I think for all these products to just the, going back to the food industry, it's frustrating. It's hard. And, and I'm, I by no means don't think you should eat those products. I mean, if I sure. didn't tell you that I had frozen veggie burgers in my freezer, I'd be lying. But the, the reality is I think those products are there. They're there for convenience, right? Like if we don't want to worry about forming a black green patty one night and we want to just like heat something up, that's awesome. Uh, and they probably are better for the most part than than non-plant-based foods. Um, but I worry with, with how we make some of those foods. I wouldn't, I don't recommend making it a, a regular thing, meaning like don't live off of those things. Uh, mm -hmm. but there's, there's more in, involved in a plant-based diet, um, or whole foods, plant-based, whatever you prefer. Um, I think just incorporating more of those things into food choices, not necessarily going all or nothing it can be hugely, hugely beneficial for treating um, certain diseases like diabetes. Is there anything else that you would say since you have that conversation so much that's already so helpful for that conversation about diabetes? Basically, our main takeaways are, you know, type of carb matters a ton and fruit yeah. and vegetables, essentially, like you can't really go wrong with those. Yeah, I think in terms of diabetes, uh, right. I think fruits and veggies, people will ask me, are there any fruits or veggies that I can't eat. Um, I generally say no, with the exception of white potatoes and corn, my definition of white potatoes are any potato that's not a sweet potato, but does that mean that you can't ever have white potatoes or corn? No, I have that conversation with our patient population here in Michigan, because I feel like we live off of white potatoes and corn in our state. Uh, and so we need to just kind of balance that with more colorful things is kind of my message. Um, so no, there's no off limits, but it, car, the type of carbs matter more whole grains are more important than kind of these, these processed foods. So for example, should you get whole grain bread versus white bread? Yes. We know that help diabetes. Uh, we know that that helps kind of stabilize blood sugar more than the processed white breads. Can you get, you know, whole wheat crackers instead of Cheez-Its? Yes. Uh, oatmeal is going to be better than a box cereal of 
you know, whatever. Um, and so getting those whole grains in, I think is very important in diabetes um, and a good focus. Adding beans is very important. Beans are amazing in our food choices and we have great evidence to support that. Um, and obviously if I'm treating diabetes, I have to mention movement because that helps lower blood sugar. Um, and it's a really important part. All right. Well, we could talk all night, but we have to stop at some point. And no. um, I want to ask you my questions that I started to ask my guests just in terms of different motivation types. So the first one is what is one thing that you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So as a reminder for you and for the listeners, this is intrinsic motivation is when you do the behavior because you get inherent satisfaction from it, like you enjoy it, you find it challenging and or satisfying in its own right? So probably for me, it would be running. Um, So I have been a runner, I think since the age of seven, I started running with my dad uh, due to health issues. Actually, I, um, you know, to share with the listeners and with you, I was born with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, um, which I was always told at that time uh, that I couldn't exercise and I couldn't run because it would hurt my joints. What we now know with that disease is that exercise actually makes a huge difference in your joint health. So thankfully, even though my doctors at the time told me not to, for my emotional health, I felt a lot better and I felt almost empowered as a kid, I think. So I started competitively running at the age of 13. Uh, I ran in college for a few years, not for my full four, but I ran for a few years and I continue to do it uh, for my own personal physical satisfaction, my emotional satisfaction. When I'm having a rough day, that's, that's what I do. I think because, um, I, by the way, went into remission from arthritis at the age of 16. Um, and so it's not something that I have. And I firmly believe that it was probably my decision to just do what I knew felt best for me. Mm, I love that your intuition about your body and the empowerment coming from that, but it sounds like running is very much, it sounds like you get a bunch of um, benefits from it, like stress management and feeling of empowerment, feeling like you're taking control of your health. I hear in that too. So yeah. Yeah. All of that is included in it. It just, it's, it's what works for me. And so, yeah, I definitely have that motivation to do that. I've had periods in my life and my adult life where I have been told I can't run for other health conditions. And, uh, I always return back to it because it's, it's what I know I need. And so I've been very thankful that my body has allowed me to do that, um, and keep me feeling the best that I can emotionally and physically. That's awesome. Did ever like the competition or other factors that are more external keep, take your love of it away? Or did you always pretty much have that intrinsic drive for it still? Cause you felt like you were choosing it. It sounds like, you know, I have to be honest in college, that was one of the hardest decisions I made was to stop running competitively. Uh, I actually made the decision as my parents made a 10 hour trek up to Michigan tech to see me race. Um, but because I had always run with my dad, it was a really big deal that he see me. Uh, I did not run in the race. I had a a very open conversation with them that I felt like it just wasn't the best thing for me at that time in my life, uh, but that I could continue running for me. And my dad had always told me from the time I was young, um, if you don't enjoy doing it, you shouldn't do it. And I wasn't enjoying it at that time. Uh, But as soon as I pulled out of that competition, I started doing it for me. Uh, so I think I've, I've had to kind of reevaluate that. I have not been competitive for a number of years, uh, again, for mo- a multitude of reasons, but I still have um, maintained doing it for my, my overall health. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I have some similarities to that too, in that my, my relationship with running was never, um, well, yeah, I got a, a little unhealthy, I think in, in high school and it was just, I was not performing very well at, in track. I did short distances and I was incredibly frustrated with myself. It was also the time that I was dieting and gaining weight and just really feeling, starting to feel very bad in my body. And I ended up leaving track early, which was very hard, a very challenging decision for me. And then was able to love running. And one day I really hope to love it again. Right now, my body does not like it and it is very (laughs) frustrating, but I'm really excited to, to get back to it because it's, I think the way you describe it really well of just this, like, knowing your intuition and knowing what you need to do to maintain that intrinsic value, because there's so many things that can take it away. If, um, if it becomes too pressuring or too, um, too much of a, a 
a should and an external like must perform well and that kind of thing it sounds like yeah for sure and so i i hope for your sake that you can get back to it if you also love it um i'm always thankful when i can when i can have that in my life and so i've recently been able to add it back and it's just made me feel a lot better um holistically Yes. I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, the problem is I have to do strength training to get strong enough. And yeah. my pelvic floor physical therapist would say, you've got to do it more consistently, but I struggle because I don't think it's yeah. very fun. <laughs> I am right there with you. I am not a strength training fan, but man, the more birthdays I have, the more I realize I should do it, but it is a push for me. Yes. Yeah. The second kiddo, my body's like, nope you yeah because <laughs> I went the other day for 20 minutes it was great and then afterwards I just my body it wasn't even painful my body was just like that was a bad choice it was oh. giving me lots of signals that you did a bad thing <laughs> so that's hard that's I hard. just I gotta slow down I gotta go back so and that leads well into my second question which is for me from moving from a should to a choose to is a battle with strength training. But for, for you, this idea of, you know, for people moving from something that was a should to something that maybe you, um, maybe you get yourself to like it eventually, but one example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you struggled to do in the past, but you figured out a way to kind of do it more consistently because you value it as part of your identity, even if you don't always intrinsically love it. Um, so a couple of things, I think, um, I, I had considered, uh, talking about strength training, um, uh, because I, I, I need to love it again for my overall health for, um, you know, I think changing what's satisfaction in health, uh, from a movement standpoint, right. It has allowed me to really appreciate my body in different ways, even going for walks, which, I encourage people to do every single day, uh, but I was never a walker. And over the last couple of years, I've started going on walks, uh, again, going through different health um, things have resulted in me being able to only walk and not run. And I've started to really embrace it. I went on a two mile walk tonight with my husband and it was really nice and it's using different muscles and it kind of slows my brain down and lets me appreciate different things. I've tried yoga. I'm not great at it, but I tried it. Um, but some other things. So sleep has always been something that like, I know I should get enough sleep. Uh, I think we can all say there's not enough hours in the day, but I don't want any more. Um, and so really kind of, uh, kind of setting some boundaries with when I should sleep and go to bed and shut down. And I don't really have a choice of when I get up, I need to be in the office by a certain time, but really making that a priority, um, has become very important to me. Uh, it helps me tremendously from my, you know, emotional health, but also it just makes me physically feel better. Um, and I think the last thing is, uh, taking time out for myself. Um, I don't even think you asked for multiple things, but I had some time to think about this and, and I think, um, you know, I, I'm not gonna, um, you know, stereotype genders, but I feel like sometimes as women, uh, or at least from my standpoint as a woman, I oftentimes put other things uh, before myself. And I also take care of other people's needs for a living. Uh, so I have really, um, I have always known that I needed to do that. But in the last few years, I've really taken that to heart and, and fiercely tried to protect kind of my time and my health and, and actually focusing on myself, which is sometimes very hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you sharing all of those because they all end up being, and this is sort of how this type of motivation works. It's rooted in values, whether we're necessarily consciously like reflecting on our values and tying it to that. But many things like with sleep, I definitely relate to the sleep one. Um, they're so tempting. I watched Ted Lasso for way too long last night. I'm like, you need to go to bed. <laughs> go to yeah. bed. But, yeah. So that one. And then, yeah, I mean, I think that the taking time for you and, and certainly for, for women, there's so many um, pressures and like expectations. And even I think in the field of medicine, there's a lot of pressure and expectation of how, what it means to work hard and what that looks like. And so, yeah. There's a lot of things to unpack, but really it sounds like for you taking some time to reflect on, this is important to me. I, I choose this, even if it's not necessarily like the easy, natural thing to, to automatically fall into. Yeah, absolutely. 
Nice. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And is there anything else that maybe we missed or just general uh, take home messages that you want our listeners to know as it relates to these topics? Um, you know, I think we covered a lot of really great things. You have great questions and hopefully the listeners have found some, some useful information in, in my answers. Uh, I think that just what we've talked about, I think it's really important for people to know that they don't have to be perfect a hundred percent of the time, right? In this journey of figuring out what health means, there's no 100%. I oftentimes will share with patients if I, said I never ate pizza or ice cream, would I be lying hundred percent? I mean, I'm human, but does that make me not healthy? Not necessarily. So I think, uh, I think we have to lose this all or nothing attitude with health, um, and not get so disappointed in ourselves, but instead pat ourselves on the back when we do something good. And I think a lot of times we forget to do that. Um, and I have that discussion very often with people that, we don't look at the positives of the things we've done. We always focus on the negatives. We are our own worst critic and uh, that's hard. I think we need to be our own biggest champion and our own biggest cheerleader. Uh, so I think changing the mindset, I would encourage just considering. Uh, and then I think just remembering that your journey is yours alone. That makes it very hard and very isolating but someone else's journey is not your journey. And so we always compare to each other, um, but everybody's journey has to be different. What, ha- what worked for somebody else or what their health is, is not your health. Uh, and so I think those aspects that we don't like about ourselves, we need to focus on the ones that we do instead. Yeah, I love that. Um, and yeah, I, I think we'll leave it at that. Those are great take-home messages, great ways to end. So thank you so much for your time. This was incredibly fun and I appreciate you taking your time to share all of your knowledge with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. It was great to see you and, um, and have a good chat. So I look forward to touching base again soon. Sounds good. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And I want to just go over some main takeaways and thoughts before we finish up here. So main thoughts I have about this episode is, you know, more evidence and more people resounding the message that your health is much, much more than your weight. This is so important to realize and remember that Really, even though we get a ton of messages that you should be in the normal BMI to be healthy, the reality is you've heard it from a physician, you've heard it from me, there is no perfect BMI or weight for every person. And it's essential to work really hard to find health professionals who get this and who support you with helping you look at your health in this broader way, because it's a challenging thing to do. By no means am I saying it's easy to think about yourself in this different way than society tells us. The other takeaway that I took from this is that learning new skills and nourishing our body can be fun. Um, Culinary medicine classes and training that Dr. Dagan has gotten, I've had the experience of being able to do these classes, which has been really fun. And I, I love this type of approach for like healthy habits is like has community, it has a sense of learning and building competence and mastery. It has all the things that help with long-term motivation. So if you have an opportunity to take a cooking class near you, please do so. I think it would be super fun. And um, I'm actually looking into right now supporting possibly a local charity who does exactly this. They're really cool. I'm going to talk to you guys about it more down the road because I'm still in the research phase and making sure this particular organization is one that I want to help, but it's very exciting. I think when we think about thinking about health in a different way and thinking about nutrition and whether that's movement or physical activity or whatever, uh, we can think about this in a more helpful, effective way, and we can make it fun. And one great way to do that is community. So go take a cooking class. All right. Another takeaway is that lifestyle medicine is a new field working on expanding our view of health. And lifestyle medicine encompasses culinary medicine, looking at sort of food as medicine, but really it takes this broader approach of broadening how we think about health, including nutrition, physical activity, social relationships, stress, sleep, 
all the things. Like, again, kind of what we do in this podcast of not fixating on weight, lifestyle medicine is working to move towards that. So that's exciting. And there's a lot of work to do in that area for sure, but it's moving slowly but surely. Another main takeaway is I'm continually reminded that the health at every size movement is not mainstream, but this does not mean that it's not legitimate. The reality is that this movement's not really talked about or fully understood in medicine. Medicine, as we talked about in this podcast, most physicians, they have a lot of different training, but nutrition and lifestyle medicine, culinary medicine are not part of that. And health at every size, like decentering the role of weight, looking at the social implications of weight bias and everything, this is not very rarely talked about. And so, you know, the phrase health at every size gives a certain message. But as we talked about in our previous episode on the topic, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about it. And my experience when you do have these conversations with medical professionals, most of the time we agree on most things. There might be some nuances to work out. I think the main fear I I hear from medical professionals is worrying that if we normalize um, health at every size too much, that people might become less healthy. I don't think there's data to support that at all. I'm not worried about that at all. I think it's a helpful movement. I'm, I'm really fully for it. Um, but I think that's just, we, we, it's helpful for all of us to understand where the hesitation comes from. And it could be different for different individuals. But, you know, that brings me to my next point is that many physicians to support decentering weight. So we can't speak for all of them, but Dr. Dakin and many of the physicians and medical professionals I've interacted with very much do support a reduced focus on the number on the scale, reduced focus on BMI, and looking at a person in a holistic, whole person way. And, you know, I think, again, sometimes that concern is that we're somehow going to make people less healthy. I think some of that comes from what I would call a sort of paternalistic view on health, and we have to micromanage people, and we can't trust them to make their own choices. I think that's a broad view in our country that I've kind of noticed. We don't support autonomy really well. So I think it's like a broader issue, but it's something that we need to keep an eye on. And as the patient, you might have to advocate for yourself and work to find someone who's going to help, um, or at least is willing to learn in these areas. Uh, Other takeaways, stop worrying about eating fruit. You know, the concern about it raising hemoglobin A1C, this marker of blood sugar control over time, is not evidence-based. And so this is not something you need to to stress about. Um, You do not need to be perfect. Dr. Dagan reminds us this again and again. In this journey of figuring out what health means, there is no 100%. She talks about the importance of patting ourselves on the back when we've done something well. She reminds us we need to be our own biggest champion and cheerleader. And I think that sounds pretty good to me. Pretty helpful, right? And finally, she reminds us that your journey is yours alone. And although at times that can feel isolating, she mentions, it's incredibly tempting to compare, but someone else's journey and someone else's body and someone else's health is not your health. And this is hard. Um, It can be easy to be frustrated with our own bodies and the challenges we face with it, but that you don't have to go it alone. You can find others to still relate to, even though their path might look different. You can find medical, nutritional, or behavioral health professionals who support you where you are now, help you to accept where you are now, and then move forward towards your health goals or any other goal. So on that note, we will finish up with today's episode. Um, Just as a reminder that, uh, you know, you probably already know that the vast majority of weight loss plans fail within one to five years. Stats are like eh, two to 20%, depending on how you measure it. Even the most evidence-based ones typically will lead to weight regain almost always and often further weight gain. So again, dieting is a really good predictor of weight gain. But what if I told you that there was a measure that predicted exercise behavior three years down the road? So three years down the road, predicted who was still exercising and it predicted some weight loss maintenance among women. Would you want to know what it was? I assume your answer is yes. 
So you're probably not surprised that it is a measure of autonomous motivation for exercise or any behavior is gonna be predictive of long-term change. So in this study for the women studied, they predicted that weight loss maintenance and exercise adherence. And really when we look at this long-term data, it's incredibly rare to find something that actually predicts long-term change. So we gotta pay attention. So I bet you're like, all right, cool, Sean, how do I get this type of motivation? Well, I created a free resource just for you to gain autonomous motivation, you have to first take the pressure off. You got to shake things up. You have to take the pressure off for whatever behavior. So I created this free 10 minute guided audio walk to help you do just that. It has some uplifting, fun music, my voice, guiding you through a new way to consider your body and movement in a way that creates joy and empowerment, not shoulds. So grab that for free today with the link in the show notes or by going to drhoundorp.com forward slash reclaim. Pop your earbuds in. You can literally listen on your couch or you can exercise. Both work. You have the choice, right? So give yourself the gift of autonomous motivation for exercise because it's effective. Sound good? All right, guys, signing off for today. Have a wonderful week and I will talk to you soon.